You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Welcome to this episode of the Business of Practice podcast, where we focus on the business and human sides of equine veterinary medicine. In this episode, Milton Toby, a retired attorney, talks about non-compete clauses. I'm your host, Kim Brown, editor of Equimanagement. The Business of Practice podcast is brought to you in 2023 by Care Credit. Toby, who is married to an equine veterinarian, is an award-winning author and photographer. He won a National Writing Award presented from the American Society of Journalists and Authors for his article in The Blood Horse about his book, Taking Shergar, Horse Racing's Most Famous Cold Case. Previous books he has authored include Dancer's Image, The Forgotten Story of the 1968 Kentucky Derby, which was the winner of the Dr. Tony Ryan Book Award for Best Book About Thoroughbred Racing, and an American Horse Publications Award for the Best Equine Book of the Year. And he wrote Noor, a champion thoroughbred's unlikely journey from California to Kentucky, which was selected as the best book about horse racing at the 2016 Equus Film Festival and the author's second AHP Award winner. Welcome to the podcast, Milton. Thanks for having me, Kim. Well, we know non-compete clauses have been around a long time. They're designed to protect an equine practice from bringing in a new veterinarian to an area, then that veterinarian leaving the practice and competing against it in the same area. So let's stop a little bit and say, what is a non-compete clause? That's a good question. And it's one of the few legal terms that actually means just what it says. It means that that the person who signs it as an employee can't compete with his employer, his or her employer. So basically, that's what it is. It's an agreement on the part of the two parties, the employer who will say is a veterinary clinic and the employee who is a, a new associate, but who's been with the clinic for a year or two or three and would like to start out on her own. And the non-compete clause is that she either can't do that or that she can do it, but there are restrictions. And that's where the legalese gets really involved. So it, it's a simple sounding thing, but it's uh, determined by the details. You know, the devil is in the details. And that's the way any sort of contract works. And non-competes are exactly like that. And. Some of the things that might show up in a non-compete might be a a specific geographic area. You can't go out and compete against your employer within 100 miles or a two-hour drive or for three years. I mean, what what are some of the normal things you might see in a non-compete? What I would expect to always see in a non-compete, first of all, is a geographic restriction. As you say, it might be might be ten miles. It might be a hundred miles. The, the the length of the, the, the well, the distance of the restriction is what's going to determine whether the non compete clause clause is reasonable or not. So you're going to have a geographic uh, geographic restriction. There's also going to be a time restriction, and during that time, you can't compete with your former employer. It may also keep you from starting your own business to compete rather than working for somebody else who is a competitor. Oh, that's a good point. 
And, and finally, there will be there may be an industry restriction, which re- restricts what the uh, former employee can do in particular industries. And again, if these are actual competitors with the employer, then that's more reasonable than saying that the employee who is leaving can't work for a drug company as a drug company representative, that sort of thing. So I would expect a time restriction, a geographic description, maybe an industry description. And also maybe something about whether the the leaving employee can poach the employer's clients. That often mm-hmm. is the biggest concern for uh, an employer. Okay, that's a good point. And so one of the reasons we are talking about this, besides it's always been a kind of a bone of contention among young veterinarians entering uh, equine practice, is that there is uh, some regulations afloat that might change this. So tell us what's going on. Well, the the issue here is a balancing of interests because a a veterinary clinic can, I think, make a a valid claim that they are protecting their own uh, business operation with a non-compete. And when they originated, you know, the original idea of a non-compete contract was to protect the employer's uh, trade secrets. Because there was a concern that the employee would learn how to make a particular kind of peanut butter cup and move to a competing peanut butter cup factory. And, and that would uh, is a quasi-legitimate concern for the employer. And the concern for the employee is whether it restricts the employee's opportunity to go out and make more money and get a better job. And when the Federal Trade Commission began looking at this, and then they do this every now and then, the the, the, the employee won, basically. The Federal Trade Commission said that, yes, they recognized that there were some valid issues for employers, but they said that it was a much greater harm to the employee who can't move up to a better job, who can't move to a better paying job, who can't move to a job that is better paying and closer to his home, her home. There are lots of reasons. And basically it was that non-competes affect the, the, the entire economy and that the balancing act goes in favor of the employee. And one of the reasons was that, surprisingly, a a lot of low-paying jobs have non-compete contracts. You you expect them to be in management or professional uh, businesses, that sort of thing. But if you've got a, uh, a hamburger place and it's very hard to get workers in your area, you might have a $13 an hour job uh, employee sign a non-compete contract to say that they won't leave the hamburger joint and go work for another one or set up one of their own. So it isn't just a professional uh, concern. And the, the National Labor Project estimates that more than 30 million workers, which is almost 20% of the U.S. workforce, are affected by non-compete clauses. So it's a big deal. And it's one of the difficulties is that they're also beginning to realize that uh, women and people of color are adversely affected by non-competes more than other groups. 
And it's often because they are in low paying jobs to begin with, can't afford to fight the non-compete in court, or they may just be afraid to argue about it because they need the work. And employers typically present a non-compete clause in a contract as a take it or leave it. You know, they aren't really interested in negotiating these things. So you wind up, particularly if you're in an underrepresented group to begin with, you wind up having no power at all and no control over your future. And that's what the FTC is looking for. And they have proposed a very lengthy set of regulations that would do essentially three things. The first thing is it would ban non-compete clauses in contracts. The second thing is that it would not allow the employer to try and convince the worker that there is a non-compete clause when there isn't. And finally, and this may be the most important thing for people who are already working in the, the veterinary profession, it would require the employer to rescind and basically delete any existing non-compete clauses. So this is, a, this is a really big deal. And the, the FTC is doing this not out of the goodness of their hearts, which they might want you to think, but they're doing it because it creates a more competitive environment. And with the economy as it's going right now, it needs to be as competitive an environment as it can be. Okay. And, and also there's just fundamental fairness. It, it's how much control an employer should have over the employees. And the, the regulations, the, the way the process works is the FTC and other agencies come up with a series of rules and regulations. And then they're published in a giant book called the Federal Register. And then there's a comment period. And the comment period for these FTC regulations about non-competes, the uh, deadline was early March. And it got extended until April 19th because they had so many comments. Uh, as of early March, they had gotten over 16,000. Wow. And they, ha they have to review all of the comments and then decide whether the comments are worthwhile and whether they need to make, make changes in the legislation when it finally passes. So this is gonna be a lengthy process. It's not gonna happen in the next week or the next month, or maybe even the next year. It's hard to know. Cause this is a very, very broad type of regulation that's going to affect almost every segment of, of the workforce. The Business of Practice podcast is brought to you by Care Credit. Care Credit keeps equine veterinarians at the heart of care by providing horse owners with simple, budget-friendly financing options. By bridging the gap between cost and care, Care Credit supports healthy financial relationships between veterinarians and their clients. It can help them move forward with care a horse needs whenever and wherever it's needed. So people still have time to comment if they're still interested. Okay. And there, there, you can go to the FTC website and find wh where you submit your comment. Okay. And we, we don't know what the breakdown of the comments is. My guess is that it would be skewed in favor of doing away with non-competes, but you never know. 
That's true. You could could have a lot of uh, employers wanting to maintain the status quo that are really up in arms about it. Exactly. Okay. Um, so I'm going to ask this because, you know, I mean, we, we need employers. We need people willing to take the risk to have a business and invest in it and hire people. But there is the agreement that, you know, non-competes are very unfair for a professional because it restricts what they can do. So is this, is this change that might be happening good or bad? It depends on who you ask. <laughs> if, you, if you ask the employer who will argue that the non-compete protects their investment, particularly if we're talking about a professional like a veterinary clinic, that it protects their investment in hiring a person and training them and giving them access to a clientele, giving them access to equipment. If you're, that's who you're asking, then no, it's a bad thing. It's a terribly bad thing because their, their investment can be substantial and it needs to be protected. If you are the worker who has been working at the, the clinic for a while, and I'm sure appreciates the learning opportunity, but you may need a better job. I mean, my guess is that associates, when they're first hired, typically don't make a lot of money. I, I haven't seen figures on that, but that would be my guess. And they want to start out on their own. They want to have their own clinic or they want to go work for something um, else. Maybe that the only place they could get work when they got out of vet school is with a small animal clinic and they want to do equine or they want to do a large animal and they, they can't do it where they're working. And that's maybe that's what they've trained for. You know, you have to take into account, again, the balancing act here between the employer, who I think has a legitimate question about losing their investment, and the worker who has an, you know, basically the same interest in monetizing their own education. Mm-hmm. So for the workers, it's good. For the employers, it probably isn't. And that would, that's the way I would expect the comments on the le- the regulations to to shake out. Yeah, that's that's true. Is there anything else that you think, um, whether you're an associate veterinarian just coming out of vet school, or you own a practice and you've used non competes that that you would suggest that they make sure to keep up on on this? Well, they need to find out what the the status of the regulations are. Because they, they won't be regulations until the, the deadline for comments on the Federal Register uh, expires, until all the comments have been examined. And at some point, the Federal Trade Commission almost certainly will issue revised regulations. And then the, that process will go through again. It'll be published in the Federal Register and <clears throat> there will, <clears throat> will be a comment period. And then at some point, the the federal federal regulations will go into effect. We just don't know for sure what they're going to be now. They may not be as extreme as this. Okay. But the other thing that, um, particularly, well, I was going to say employers, but employers and employees as well <clears throat> need to to be on top of is whether their particular state will even enforce a non compete. And right now we have fifty states. And which means we have 50 different common law approaches to non-competes. There are a few states that simply will not enforce them because it's against public policy. The majority of states will enforce them if 
the restrictions that we talked about, the time restriction, the geographic description, the industry uh, description, if those restrictions are reasonable, there's a good chance that the court will accept it. And that's the advantage of this FTC regulation. You have uniformity across the country. Okay. But you need to find out what your own state is before you start trying to enforce a non-compete while you still can. Okay. And how, do, how does a, a practice owner do that? Well, practices will have attorneys. Okay. Employees probably won't. But the, the attorney can look at the, the, the court cases in the particular state. And that's what's going to be governed here. It's a common law question. And so the court decisions in your particular state are what's going to determine the enforceability of your particular non-compete. So the attorney can do that fairly quickly because they will have someone who is an employee do the research for them. So that's the way you keep up because if, if your jurisdiction obviously refuses to enforce a non-compete, then there's no reason for you to bring a lawsuit. Because they're going, the, the new judge is going to look at all the precedent in your state. And if there is enforcement based on reasonableness, then you craft your non-compete to, to match what other courts are enforcing. And is there anything else that you would like to add about non-competes? Not really. I, I think it's something that we, everybody in whatever industry you're in, but particularly veterinarians, I think, need to be aware of, of what the FTC is trying to do. You may not be able to influence it, but you'll be able to re- react to it when the regulations become law. And I'm going to go back to something else because I know um, we we discussed some of your books and so forth, and I know you've got a new one that's going to be coming out. Tell us a little about that. I, I do indeed. It's being published by the University Press of Kentucky, and the title is Unnatural Ability, the History of Performance Enhancing Drugs in Thoroughbred Racing. It's a topic that I have been really interested in for a very long time, and it's as timely as you can imagine. And I think a lot of people who are seeing the the Bob Baffert issue that keeps cropping up and who are aware of the 20 plus veterinarians and drug manufacturers that were indicted by the feds in, in 2020. And all of, all, all of those have either pleaded guilty or have been convicted at trial. So the, the, the first batch of people are all guilty. They've either admitted it or the court has said that you're guilty. And I think that there is a perception that doping may be a new problem because all of a sudden we're hearing a lot about it when we just generally didn't in the past. And the, the, the purpose of this book is to examine whether there is in fact a doping culture in horse racing or whether it's a very, very narrow community of people. And, what, and the real question is whether it's a problem to be addressed or whether it's a public relations issue for racing to deal with. And I think there is a lot of thought that maybe this isn't as big as the the current news suggests. And the the premise of this book is, well, hey, maybe this has been going on longer than you realize. I started in 1890. 
as what I, I viewed as the the birth of systematic organized doping in horse racing and moved from there to the current situation with Madonna Spirit finally being disqualified and all the indicted people being found guilty. And there were some big names in the indictments, you know, leading trainers. So it, it wasn't just a handful of people. And I think that there, there is a doping culture in racing. I think there has been for over a century and probably longer than that. But the question is how you define a doping culture. It doesn't mean that everybody in racing dopes their horses. And one of the things that, that you can do to find out how, what people think is to get a group of people together or in a cocktail party, this always livens things up, and, and ask people about the indictments, about the federal indictments in 2020, and ask them, and you want people in the horse business, and ask them, and you won't ask for a show of hands because that won't be productive. But... <laughs> You ask them to think about it and then ask them if they were surprised by the scope of the indictments. And if I were a betting person, and I haven't been for a long time, but <laughs> if, if I were a betting person, I would put my money on, they weren't surprised. That people knew yeah. this was going on. And that's what the book's about. It isn't a... It's not a comprehensive list of everything that has gone wrong. I, I went through and picked instances that were descriptive of what was happening in that period. In, when the Jockey Club was formed in New York in the, the middle 1890s, they had a rule against doping then. But there's no way to enforce it if you don't have a test. And there was not a test for any sort of performance-enhancing drug in the U.S. until 1934. So for you know, 40 years, the doping culture had free reign to do whatever they wanted. And then things changed a little bit. We, we, we got a saliva test for a few basic alkaloids, the morphine, uh, opium, cocaine, caffeine, and, and then things progressed. As soon as we started testing, that's the birth of the testing era. And ever since then, there's been a race between the, the dopers who want to come up with new untestable drugs and the regulators who want to come up with tests. And the, the dopers are always going to win because you can't test for something if you don't know what it is. That's the problem. Yeah. So, so the testers are always behind here. But the new technologies will help them catch up. So that's what the book is about. And I'll, I'll be interested to see the reactions. Yeah, I think this is something, the reason I want to bring it up is this is something I think veterinarians will be very interested in to see how some of some of this has evolved, like you said, from the 1800s all the yeah. way up to today. Yeah, it, it is. It's an interesting issue for the veterinary profession, I think. And the book will be out. The, the, the supposed release date is August the 8th, okay. assuming everything goes well. And this can be found on most normal places. So you go to buy books like Amazon or Barnes yep. & Noble or whatever. Okay. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Milton, for coming today to talk to us about um 
you know, the non-compete clauses, which I think is is going to be a game changer in the equine veterinary industry. So something people should be thinking about today um, and how they do business. And also, I can't wait to read the book. I've, I've read a lot of your other books and have really enjoyed them. Shergar so far is still my favorite. I'm sorry. We'll have to see how the, the doping one measures up. So, <laughs> but thanks again for joining us. And thanks to all of our audience for listening to us. And a big thanks to our sponsor, Care Credit, for letting us have these conversations. And we invite you to visit equimanagement.com or your favorite podcast network to hear every episode of The Business of Practice. And if you have any questions or suggestions, send an email to me at kbrown, that's the letter K Brown, at equinenetwork.com. The Business of Practice is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network, LLC. 